New York, this is Democracy Now! The indictment lists 225 incidents in which we allege that the defendants worked together to prevent the construction of the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center. Georgia's Republican Attorney General has filed RICO charges against 61 activists. He accuses of being part of a criminal enterprise to stop Cop City, the $90 million police training complex facing ongoing protests in Atlanta. The charges were approved by the same grand jury that indicted former President Trump and 18 others on RICO charges. We'll get an update from a movement lawyer and a Stop Cop City activist in Atlanta. Then to Ukraine, where U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has made a surprise visit to Kyiv after the Biden administration said it will, for the first time, send munitions containing radioactive depleted uranium to Ukraine. We'll speak with a British journalist about his expose, Contamination Fears After Ukraine Loses a British Tank with Depleted Uranium Munitions. Finally, to the first Africa Climate Summit in Nairobi. We'll speak with a Kenyan activist there. Hi, my name is Eric Ishkuna, Youth Climate Justice Organizer based in Nairobi, Kenya. And I'm here on the last day of the Climate Justice Camp, where over 450 Youth Climate Justice Organizers came together to connect, build community, strategize against the fossil fuel industry, and envision a just and equitable future. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Enrique Tarrio, the former leader of the far-right Proud Boys, has been sentenced to 22 years in prison, the longest sentence handed down to anyone involved in the January 6th insurrection. In May, Tarrio and three other members of the Proud Boys were convicted of seditious conspiracy. On Tuesday, U.S. District Judge Timothy Kelly said Tario was, quote, the ultimate leader of that conspiracy. Tario received the stiffest sentence, even though he was not in Washington on the day of January 6th, since he'd been arrested in a separate case days earlier and was ordered to stay away from D.C. During the trial, prosecutors had portrayed the Proud Boys as having served as Donald Trump's army on January 6th. Last week, four other Proud Boys were sentenced to between 10 and 18 years in prison. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has arrived in Kyiv on an unannounced visit to Ukraine. This is Blinken's fourth trip to Ukraine since the Russian invasion, but for the first time, Blinken plans to spend the night. He's expected to announce a new package worth more than $1 billion in U.S. aid for Ukraine. We want to make sure that Ukraine has what it needs not only to succeed in the counteroffensive, but has what it needs for the long term to make sure that it has a strong deterrent, strong defense capacity, so that in the future, aggressions like this don't happen again. Blinken's visit came just hours after Russian cruise missiles hit Kyiv in the first aerial attack on the capital in about a week. Meanwhile, a Russian drone hit the Danube port of Ismail in the Odessa region, killing one person. There are a number of developments in the legal cases against Donald Trump. 
Former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows pleaded not guilty Tuesday and waived his formal arraignment. Meadows is one of Trump's 18 co-defendants accused of being part of a criminal enterprise that attempted to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. Attorney John Eastman and former Justice Department official Jeffrey Clark also pleaded not guilty Tuesday. Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., special counsel Jack Smith has warned Trump's daily statements may prejudice the jury pool in Washington, where Trump is facing a separate criminal trial. Trump has repeatedly attacked Smith, as well as U.S. District Judge Tanya Shutkin. In other legal news, the trial of Trump's former trade adviser, Peter Navarro, has begun. He was indicted for refusing to comply with a subpoena from the House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. In Atlanta, Georgia, 61 activists have been indicted on RICO charges for their involvement in the protests against a construction of a massive $90 million police training complex known as Cop City. Georgia's Republican Attorney General Christopher Carr accuses the activists of violating the state's Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act. The indictment was handed up by the same Fulton County Grand Jury panel that indicted President Donald Trump and 18 co-defendants on RICO charges. Many of the protests have already been charged with domestic terrorism. The ACLU blasted the indictment of the Cop City protesters. ACLU attorney Amra Ahmad said, quote, We are extremely concerned by this breathtakingly broad and unprecedented use of state terrorism, anti-racketeering and money laundering laws against protesters, unquote. We'll have more on this story after headlines. The United Nations Secretary General announced earlier today that climate breakdown has begun. Antonio Guterres made the remark at the World Meteorological Organization released new data on this summer's record-breaking heat in the Northern Hemisphere. According to the organization, last month was the hottest August on record, quote, by a large margin, and the second hottest month ever recorded. The only month hotter was this past July. Guterres said, quote, the dog days of summer are not just barking, they are biting. This comes as extreme weather continues to devastate areas across the globe. In southern Brazil, at least 21 people have died after a cyclone triggered floods and landslides in the state of Rio Grande do Sul. The storm forced at least 6,000 people from their homes. I feel devastated. I lost everything. There are many people who lost much more, but here at home, I have nothing left. In other climate news, a massive rainstorm hit Greece, Turkey, Bulgaria, killing at least seven people. In Istanbul, about a dozen people had to be rescued from a library after being stranded by floods. Parts of Greece recorded more than 30 inches of rain. The storm comes as Greece just begins to recover from record-breaking wildfires. Meanwhile, in China, a typhoon inundated the southeastern province of Fujian, forcing tens of thousands to flee their homes. India is preparing to host the G20's annual summit for the first time. The talks begin in Delhi Saturday. For months, Indian authorities have ordered bulldozers to destroy the homes of people who live in shanties near the G20 conference. Many displaced residents say they have no place to go. We have been living here for the last 25 to 30 years. Where do we go now that our houses are suddenly demolished? We have no facilities or a place to live, and we have become homeless and are on the road. I hope the authorities get sick and die, and they will be cursed by the poor. 
Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva has officially recognized two indigenous territories in an attempt to protect the land from illegal loggers, miners and cattle ranchers. Lula spoke Tuesday at a ceremony to mark Amazon Day. The Amazonian people deserve to have their rights guaranteed and opportunities for a better life. If there is no future for the Amazon and its people, there will be no future for the planet either. That is what today's event is about, concrete actions to guarantee the future of the Amazon and each of us. In a major diplomatic development, Saudi Arabia and Iran have exchanged ambassadors, formally ending a seven-year diplomatic rift between the oil giants. In March, China brokered a deal for the two countries to restore relations. The Spanish Soccer Federation has appointed Montse Tomé to become the first woman to serve as coach of the women's national soccer team, which won the Women's World Cup three weeks ago. The announcement was made shortly after the federation fired coach Jorge Vilda, who had long faced criticism for his coaching style. Calls for Vilda's resignation grew after he expressed support for Spanish Soccer Federation President Luis Rubiales, who forcibly kissed Spanish player Jenny Hermosa during the Women's World Cup awards ceremony. Rubiales is facing nationwide calls to be ousted, including from the women's soccer team, staff and prominent politicians. Spain's prime minister, Pedro Sánchez, said, quote, one cannot aspire to represent Spain and make Spain look bad with attitudes and speeches that embarrass us and that do not represent us, unquote. In the United States, a federal court has struck down Alabama's congressional map, which was designed by Republicans to dilute the power of black voters. The judges said they were, quote, deeply troubled that lawmakers had defied a prior court order to draw a map with two majority black districts. Two of the judges in this case were appointed by Donald Trump. A court-appointed special master will now draw new congressional districts. Alabama's attorney general has vowed to appeal the decision. In Texas, the impeachment trial of Republican Attorney General Ken Paxton has begun in the Republican-controlled Texas State Senate. Paxton has pleaded not guilty to all 16 articles of impeachment. He is accused of abusing his office, bribery and obstruction of justice. Here in New York, the police department has agreed to change how it responds to protests after reaching a settlement and lawsuits stemming from the department's violent response to the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020. The NYPD reached the settlement with New York Attorney General Letitia James, the Legal Aid Society and the New York Civil Liberties Union. As part of the settlement, the NYPD agreed to stop using a tactic called kettling to trap and arrest protesters. Other key elements to the settlement include the creation of a new oversight committee to assess how police respond to protests. New York Attorney General Letitia James said, quote, too often peaceful protesters have been met with force that has harmed innocent New Yorkers simply trying to exercise their rights. Today's agreement will meaningfully change how the NYPD engages with and responds to public demonstrations in New York City, she said. 
And former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson has died at the age of 75. He also served as U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Energy Secretary, U.S. Congress member. Yes, spent 14 years in Congress, including a period as chair of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. Richardson also went on dozens of humanitarian missions to help secure the release of Americans held overseas, including trips to Iraq, Afghanistan, Cuba, Colombia, Sudan, North Korea and Russia, where he helped free the WNBA star Brittany Griner. As Energy Secretary Richardson faced criticism for his handling of the arrest of the Taiwanese-American nuclear scientist Wen Ho Li, who was held for 278 days in solitary confinement after being falsely accused of being a Chinese spy. Wen Ho Li eventually pled guilty to a minor charge. At the time, a federal judge issued a dramatic apology to Wen Ho Li, but Richardson would continue to defend his handling of the case. He appeared on Democracy Now! in 2005. I believe that we acted properly in safeguarding our nuclear secrets. He was convicted on several counts. Uh, there were some mistakes in that case. It involved the entire federal government, and I stand behind everything that I did. To see the whole interview with Governor Richardson that Juan Gonzalez and I did back in 2005 in Santa Fe, go to democracynow.org. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, we're beginning today's show in Atlanta, Georgia, where the state's Republican attorney general has announced a sweeping new RICO indictment against 61 activists and others he accuses of being part of a, quote, criminal enterprise to stop Cop City, a massive $90 million police training complex that's facing widespread opposition and ongoing protests. The charges were brought in Fulton County and approved by the same grand jury that indicted former President Donald Trump and 18 of his associates on RICO, or racketeering charges, brought by Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis, who is a Democrat. At a news conference Tuesday, Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr and John Fowler, head of Georgia's prosecution division, laid out their allegations and why they brought the case in Fulton County. As alleged in the indictment, the defendants are members of Defend the Atlanta Forest, an anarchist, anti-police, and anti-business extremist organization. We contend these 61 defendants together have conspired to prevent the construction of the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center by conducting, coordinating, and organizing acts of violence, intimidation, and property destruction. Why Fulton County and not DeKalb County? Uh, Georgia racketeering law allows that, um, and we availed ourselves of, of the Georgia racketeering law to do that. Um, anywhere that a predicate act um, or an overt act in furtherance of a conspiracy occurred um, in any county where that occurred is where you can indict the case, and we chose Fulton County. When you allege a conspiracy to commit racketeering, there's no requirement under Georgia law that they know each other. Um, the whole purpose of the, of the Georgia racketeering law is that they're all working in some way, shape, or form towards the same goal, and they formed a conspiracy to do that. That doesn't necessarily mean that every person has to talk to every single person. All you have to do is commit one overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy with 
the others, and then you can be guilty of, of um, racketeering. So that's that's why is because it's a large case, um, and and so if you want to tie everybody together, and they're all trying to do the same thing, racketeering is the appropriate charge. In addition to the 61 racketeering indictments, five people were also indicted on domestic terrorism and first-degree arson charges. Three people with the Atlanta Solidarity Fund were each indicted on 15 counts of money laundering for their work to provide bail money and legal aid for protesters. The indictment was issued on September 5th and filed August 29th. The indictment alleges the protests included violent anti-police sentiment that's now one of the, quote, core driving motives of protests to stop Cop City. For more, we go to Atlanta, where we're joined by Kiana Jones, a Stop Cop City organizer for Community Movement Builders, and Devin Franklin, a Movement Policy Counsel at the Southern Center for Human Rights. He worked over a decade as a public defender in Atlanta. His group has issued a call for lawyers to represent the 61 people now facing RICO charges. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! These are late-breaking developments. Devin, let's begin with you. Can you explain what happened? Um, can you explain these RICO charges against 61 activists from the same Fulton County grand jury that um, approved the RICO charges against President Trump? But this was all led by the Republican attorney general. It almost looks like a response to what Fonnie Willis did with the grand jury uh, against President Trump and others. Good morning. Yes, it certainly is a response. Um, but I would argue that it is a response to the larger movement. That has been as it pertains to several matters of um, police violence and government uh, prejudice. Um, it's, it's it's just a lot going on, um, and I think that the state has shown that they don't have a meaningful way to respond to what the people are showing that they want, and they are choosing to use uh, the legal process in a essentially violent way to target protesters. And could you talk about the uh, the in, the indictment itself, some of the main uh, aspects uh, of it, uh, Devin Franklin, and and the number of people is extraordinary that are, are charged. Yeah, it's really rare for this number of people to be included on an indictment. Um, in my 12 years uh, as a public defender in Fulton County, I never had a case that this was this large or witnessed a case that was this large. Um, I think that when we look at the number of people that were accused and we look at the allegations that are included in the indictment, what we see are a wide variety of activities that are lawful, that are being deemed to be criminal. And um, that includes things such as passing out flyers, right? Um, a really clear example of First Amendment, um, the exercise of First Amendment, of First Amendment rights. Um, we see that uh, organizations that were bailing people out for protests um, or conducting business in otherwise lawful manners um, have been deemed to be part of some ominous um, infrastructure. Um, and it's just not accurate. Um, this is really clearly a political prosecution. Um, and yeah. And, and how does it turn out that the same grand jury uh, that indicted uh, Trump and, and uh, his associates uh, is a uh, was the grand jury on this particular case? It appears to be so from the limited information that I've been given. Um, and it could simply be a matter of timing. It could have been something that has, that was, or I, uh, 
DA Fonnie Willis and AG Chris Carr. Um, there's no way to know for certain. Um, but what we do know is that for some point in time, for a period of time, rather, um, the attorney general of the state of Georgia, uh, the governor of the state of Georgia, Brian Kemp, have both expressed discontent with the success that has been gained by the Stop Cop City movement and the momentum that has been created in the streets among the people and that they have chosen to use those things which they, which they have at their access, at their disposal, to essentially attempt to criminalize um, otherwise lawful activity. Devin Franklin, what's interesting is that the DeKalb County's top prosecutor, the DA, announced she is stepping away from every case involving Atlanta's public safety, public safety training center, Cop City. DeKalb mm-hmm. County District Attorney Sherry Boston announced she is out. She will not support these uh, charges going forward. Your response to this? I think it's telling. I think it's really telling because uh, the DeKalb County prosecutor has, you know, a pretty good reputation in the legal community. And for her to take a look at the actions that the attorney general was seeking to um, go forward with in her county and for her to say, you know, I don't want any parts of it. I have concerns about the legitimacy of these charges. I have concerns about the intent of the charges that the prosecutor uh, attorney general uh, Chris Carr is seeking. Um, I think that it is kind of uh, uh, a unique, unique way of saying the quiet part out loud, which is something is not right. Um, something doesn't smell right with this entire situation, and I want no parts of it. Um, and I think that will bear out as we get deeper into the discovery that is to follow the indictment. And very quickly, uh, before we go to Kiana Jones, um, your own center, the Southern Center um, for Human Rights, has it been named in any way in this? You have called for lawyers around the country to come help represent the protesters, but you yourself are a lawyer and you're a former public defender. Correct. Yeah. Um, in no way that I'm, I'm aware that we have been named in anything. Um we are attempting, uh, essentially just trying to make sure that persons who are brought within the arms of the legal system um, have access to counsel. That's a constitutional right. Um, and there is nothing unlawful about ensuring that people have fair, accurate, zealous representation when they're taking on a system such as what the state of Georgia is um, being at this point in time. I'd like to bring uh, Kiana Jones uh, into the conversation, an organizer against Cop City. Welcome to Democracy Now! And your response to these indictments. Thank you for having me. My response to these indictments is just the same as Devin's. We know that this is retaliation for anyone who seeks to oppose the government here in Georgia. A very clear message was sent with this particular RICO indictment. We see that the date on this indictment reads May 25th, 2020, the date that George Floyd was murdered. The date that people all across this country stood up and said that enough is enough. We won't stand for police terror, excessive violence and brutality and the senseless killings of innocent black people around this country. Since that date, this country has been upended by governments across the nation trying to build cop cities in order to quell protests because the government is simply upset that people seek to oppose and use their First Amendment right to protest when we see injustice coming from those in authority. 
And can you talk about examples of the charges? For example, handing out flyers, Kiana. Yes, um, people were indicted for handing out flyers. And what those flyers contained, first of all, messages that say stop Cop City, messages that give details about what Cop City truly is, that it is not just a public safety training facility, that it is actually a militarized training facility that would destroy 381 acres of forest land in a black neighborhood where the city of Atlanta essentially had no jurisdiction in DeKalb County, but somehow backroom deals were made and laws were broken in order to acquire the land. Some of the flyers actually named the murderers of Manuel Esteban Paez Teran, known as Tortuguita. There is nothing that is wrong with giving information. So information that was obtained through public record that said, hey, there was a protester that was killed for sitting with their hands up. These are the perpetrators. We need justice. We want justice. I don't understand how giving out flyers with information is domestic terrorism. I don't understand how holding a sign that says stop cop city is domestic terrorism. I don't understand how opposing the government using your legal right to protest your right to freedom of speech is domestic terrorism. And I certainly don't understand how attending a music festival is domestic terrorism. Um, and uh, Kiana, what about this issue of the uh, the campaign for a ballot referendum against Cop City? The impact of something like these indictments on p- potential voters? Oh, absolutely. This is the state's last desperate attempt to shut down the ballot referendum. We have been back and forth in court with Mayor Dickens and the city of Atlanta, also the state of Georgia, about the validity of this ballot referendum, which we know we have the right to under the Georgia Constitution, the same way Attorney General Carr went to the laws of the state of Georgia to throw together this RICO indictment. We searched the laws of the state of Georgia and the Georgia state constitution, and we know that we have a legal right to this ballot referendum. But instead, Attorney General Carr, Mayor Andre Dickens of the city of Atlanta, have tried to tie us up in court to invalidate not only this referendum, but all referenda going forward, which is a very dangerous precedent that would be set. Because what it says essentially is that if you don't like the laws that have been passed or something that's been done by your local government, then you would have no recourse. And I believe that that in itself is the ultimate pinnacle of anti-democracy. Attorney Devin Franklin, um, all of these activists will be processed at the Fulton County Jail in the same way that Trump was and uh, and his uh, co-conspirators. Uh, and can these charges be expanded to others? And as people organize for the referendum, as they organize against Cop City, which would be the largest such uh, training facility in the country— Does this completely derail it as they fight for their own vindication? Nothing derails the movement. Um, As Kiana spoke, there have been ups and downs throughout the entire period of this. Um, But one thing that we know is that the movement has shown a great deal of resiliency, intelligence and structure and organization. Um, It's a wide ranging movement, black people, white people, um, 
heterosexual people, transgender people, environmentalists, social justice activists. Uh, it's a coalition of people who have come together around several issues um, and allow each other, allow people to learn from one another about um, a variety of a variety of things. Um, so I do not believe that this uh, this farce of an indictment is going to intimidate um, those members of the movement. Um, to answer your first question, um, I do believe that the persons who have been charged at some point in time will go through the same booking processes as the people involved in the Trump indictment. Um, it is too early to know um, if they will have the same access to um You just froze, Devin. Let me know uh, when I'm back. Go ahead, Devin. Yeah, it's unclear as to whether or not um, members of the movement will have access to the same negotiation abilities for bonds as members of the Trump indictment did. Uh, we would certainly hope so. Um, but it's kind of it's, it's really early in the process and we are awaiting word of what that will look like. Well, I want to thank you both for being with us, Devin Franklin, Movement Policy Council at the Southern Center for Human Rights, and Kiana Jones, a Stop Cop City organizer for community movement builders, both speaking to us from Atlanta, Georgia. Next up, a surprise visit to Kyiv by the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. The Biden administration says it will, for the first time, send munitions containing radioactive depleted uranium to Ukraine. We'll speak with a British journalist about his new expose, Contamination Fears After Ukraine Lost a British Tank with Depleted Uranium Munitions. Stay with us. The wrong way for the feng shui. I got bent like a up dog. My leg went his trust fall. I crushed a lot like the punt song. A dark moon versus king me. This grudge match set for one fall. I dropped my phone off a butt lump. I always roll the blunt wrong. The edge sharp like a bus saw. I got chased with a chainsaw. Wash my face, not a drain's claw. Was a low ball, but a play ball. In retrospect, not a great call. A large tank on the seesaw. A heartbreak and a free fall. We saw the snakes on the fresh lawn. We heard the lawns, but we pressed on. All day on a Sunday. The wrong way on the runway. I'm off the base in a fun way. Turn the sofa to blockade. The wrong way for the feng sway. I throw shade like I'm Bruce Wayne. With no name like the Goose Game. Most days it's the Wu-Tang. Some days it's OJ the Juice Man. Was two chains with a third chain. I flew south like a bird. I bled on stage at first half by Open Mike Eagle. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We turn now to Ukraine where U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has arrived in Kyiv on an unannounced visit to Ukraine, expected to announce a new package worth more than $1 billion in U.S. aid for Ukraine. This comes as the Biden administration is reportedly planning to announce it will, for the first time, send depleted uranium munitions to Ukraine, even though the weapons are radioactive and their use causes contamination that's hazardous to human health. Reuters reports the armor-piercing uranium munitions are part of a new military aid package for Ukraine set to be unveiled in the next week. This follows a previous decision by the Biden administration to arm Ukraine with cluster munitions, which have been banned by an international treaty ratified by more than 110 countries. 
This week, a new report by the Cluster Munition Coalition found 916 deaths and injuries from cluster bombs in Ukraine last year. Meanwhile, it was reported Monday one of the 14 so-called Challenger 2 tanks that Britain sent to Ukraine with the capacity to fire depleted uranium shells was destroyed in a battle with Russian forces in the village of Robotin, which Ukraine says its troops recently captured in its counteroffensive. For more, we go to London. We're joined by Phil Miller, chief reporter for Declassified UK, an independent media outlet that focuses on national security. His story is headlined, Contamination Fears After Ukraine Loses British Tank. Welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us, Phil. Can you start off by responding, although you're in Britain, to the U.S., what looks like the Biden administration decision to send DU munitions to Ukraine, and tell us what you found in your expose with the British tank that was just destroyed? Thank you for having me, Amy. So I think Biden's decision to send tanks with depleted uranium to Ukraine has been made possible in large part because Britain led the way on this. Um, If you remember back in January, our Prime Minister here, Rishi Sunak, announced that Britain was going to send these 14 tanks. And that was at a time when it was controversial just to send tanks. Um, And that helped cross the red line. And after that, we saw countries like Germany announcing that they would send much larger uh, quantities of of tanks to Ukraine. And this has really been Britain's role throughout this war, has been to kind of up the ante and to lead the way on weapons supplies to Ukraine, despite the kind of escalatory fears about what what effect that's having on on the battlefield. So starting with um, anti-tank launches back right before the invasion, to then tanks, to more recently even cruise missiles, This seems to be the role that Britain has played in the conflict, and it makes it easier for other countries like Germany or now the US to send much larger quantities of uh, weapon systems that were once considered controversial. Now, the the reason that depleted uranium is so controversial is because it's essentially a a byproduct of of nuclear waste, and it is is radioactive. The UK stockpile even contains some uh, trace amounts of plutonium, And much of this was made in the 80s and 90s, and and the stuff that we've been sending out to Ukraine, some of it may even have expired. But it was used um, most notably in in the Gulf Wars in in Iraq. And uh, there's been a long concern there about birth defects and cancers linked to the use of this ammunition in Iraq and also in the former Yugoslavia. And so when I revealed back in March that Britain was actually sending this ammunition with its Challenger 2 tanks, there was international outcry. Um, Farhan Huck, the UN Secretary General spokesman, uh, came out and condemned the decision by the UK to supply these weapons. And Russian President Vladimir Putin quite predictably used it as a pretext to send uh, tactical, so-called tactical nuclear weapons to Belarus, which brought the um, Europe and the world one step closer to, to nuclear confrontation and, and the catastrophic consequences that would flow from that. So even before these weapons had been fired in Ukraine, it would already had an adverse uh, implications for international peace. Now, the British Ministry of Defence uh, says that there's a low risk to human health from using these weapons, and it says it's necessary because depleted uranium is an ultra-dense metal that's able to punch through uh, tank armour in a way that other munitions aren't able to. So it's, it's made as essentially a dart that's fired at, at through enemy enemy tanks. But this this 
justification is slightly undermined by the fact that the UK military also likes to point out that Russia is increasingly having to use very antiquated tanks, including T-62s that were made in the 1960s, and even some armoured personnel carriers that were first fielded in 1954. So The UK military is kind of trying to have its cake and eat it with this argument, saying on the one hand, Ukraine needs very advanced anti-armour weapons, whilst at the same time highlighting that Russia is using very antiquated weapon systems. And even though some of the more recent Russian tanks have been up- upgraded so that they are capable of firing depleted uranium, the UK military is not able to point to any evidence that Putin has actually Uh, allowed his troops to use this munition type yet in Ukraine. So this is very much something that the UK has introduced to to the battle zone. Um, And the tanks arrived in April in time for Ukraine's counteroffensive. And they've been held in reserve awaiting a a, a breakthrough. And it seems that only in the last week or so has the counteroffensive advanced to the point where we've started to see videos of these British Challenger 2 tanks in action. And most surprisingly was the footage that emerged this week showing one of them billowing with smoke after being hit, presumably by Russian, Russian fire. And this is said to be the first time that a, a Challenger 2 tank has ever been destroyed in, in enemy action. Now, I'm told that the crew are said to have survived the strike, but there's a real risk that there was depleted uranium ammunition inside that could be ignited by the fire and producing a, a toxic aerosol uh, that could... P- cause a risk both to the tank crew and any other soldiers passing through the area. The video is filmed by what appear to be Ukrainian soldiers driving downwind in a car with open windows, so they would have certainly have inhaled uh, the, these toxic fumes. And the UK military's own health assessments that I've seen from the 1980s when this ammunition was invented uh, show that they, they were very concerned about the risk of, of a fire igniting this ammunition, and they said that you would need to send in teams with, with breathing apparatus to deal with it. People would need to stay upwind. Anyone who inhaled it should be taken to hospital, and you'd need a, a, a contamination team to move in there and deal with the large quantities of soil that would be contaminated. Now, of course, this area of Ukraine is, is a live war zone. They're not going to be able to undertake that kind of decontamination efforts for some time now. And it will be further complicated by the presence of other munitions, such as cluster bombs, which we know have a high failure rate, which can make it hard for these demining teams to go in. And what we've seen in other conflicts, notably in Iraq, is that these tank hulls litter the battlefield for many years after the conflict. Uh, Children go and and play on them, thinking they're some kind of climbing frame, um, and they can become contaminated with with depleted uranium, leading leading to um, very rare forms of cancer. Uh, Phil Miller, I wanted to ask you, when Britain used depleted uranium in Iraq in 2003, the government said it would publish the locations where DU was fired and also help with decontamination. Did they follow through on that? And has the UK made any such promises in the case here of Ukraine? That's right. So back in 2003, after the invasion of Iraq, the UK military recognized it had a a so-called moral obligation uh, to help Iraq post-conflict to decontaminate um, you know, any tanks that Britain had fired this depleted uranium at. And small amounts of aid money were given towards these projects. Um, I, I don't think the decontamination efforts were actually very well resourced. There were shortages of even things like um, alpha detectors. Um, so you know, there, there were serious shortcomings there. But at least the, the principle was made and there was an acknowledgement. What we've seen um, with the UK stance to Ukraine is they've said... They're not going to publish the firing locations and, and they're not going to help to any specific decontamination project. 
So there seems to have been a shift, a hardening of attitudes over the last 20 years, um, even as the scientific uh, body of evidence shows greater concern and emphasis on precaution uh, to approaching this, this type of ammunition. I wanted to stick with Iraq. And Juan, back in 2004, you did an amazing investigative report for The New York Daily News that found four of nine soldiers of the 442nd Military Police Company of the New York Army National Guard who returned from Iraq tested positive for depleted uranium contamination. Three of the contaminated soldiers joined us on the show. Uh, this was Sergeant Augustin Matos. They looked at me like I had two heads when I told them I wanted to get tested for depleted uranium. Uh, they actually told us at one point that there was no such test for depleted uranium. And when Sergeant Reed went to Walter Reed on his own and actually went and inquired about it, and I guess they gave him a test because they were tired of seeing him, okay? Whether he got his results on time or whether the results are accurate, who knows? But my, my thing is this. I was very upset because I came down with an episode of urinating blood while I was at, Walter, at uh, Fort Dix, and then they found a 2.5-centimeter lesion in my liver, um, unexplainably. And all of a sudden, they're rushing to try and check to see if it's cancerous. Walter Reed Hospital told me it was benign. It wasn't cancerous. But the fishy thing about it is my wife came down just last month with abdominal pain, severe abdominal pains, that I had to take her to the hospital. She got tested. They thought it was stones. They put her on Vicodin and, and painkillers and as far as uh, antibiotic. And they're still trying to find out what was it that caused it. So that's... Sergeant Augustin Matos, again deployed in Iraq with the 442nd Military Police, who tested positive for DU contamination. Um, he also uh, continued to talk on the show. Well, I myself, uh, while I was out there, experienced a couple of fever one night. Uh, unexplained, I was fine during the day, and then it just hit me. I, it just totally knocked me out. I was in bed. I couldn't get out. Um, I can't remember exactly what the fevers were, but um, also I had a... Uh, I was urinating blood while I was out there. Um, it, it wasn't good. It was just a place not to be when you were sick like that. So, Juan, it was really you who exposed this whole story of depleted uranium, and here we are um, uh, almost 20 years later. Um, uh, in light of this, if you can talk about um, what you feel at the time was understood in the United States. No, well, I think the important thing to understand is that this was a military police unit that had not been in actual uh, combat in Iraq, but had been basically stationed in an area where combat and the use of depleted uranium had occurred previously. And so they were basically bivouacked or, or camped out uh, in uh, what was an essentially contaminated uh, area. Uh, and uh, the amazing thing to me was how when they, several of them began to get sick, uh, they didn't find any kind of receptivity uh, at, uh, when they came back home in the Veterans Administration for trying to assess their illnesses or trying to figure out the cause. It was basically uh, the, uh, the U.S. government refusing to even look uh, and to find out what was causing the illnesses in, in these soldiers. So I think this is the problem, uh, the, uh, the long-term risks to anybody in an area where depleted uranium uh, has been used. Uh, and uh, it continues, obviously, 20, more than 20 years, we're almost 20 years later, uh, the same problem now in a new war. 
And Phil Miller, uh, as you listen to that U.S. soldier, of course, then there's the issue, and you looked at this uh, with Britain and Iraq as well, with the Iraqis affected. And now we're talking about Ukraine and Russia. Uh, what is the scientific consensus around the health impacts of depleted uranium? And how has the British government responded to your report? So there's a real issue in that a lot of the scientific research on this subject is, is very out of date. When Britain, um, when I revealed that Britain was sending depleted uranium to Ukraine, the Ministry of Defence here justified it by pointing to research by the Royal Society, which is Britain's premier scientific body. Uh, but I drilled down on that and found that actually the reports they were referring to were from 2002, uh, so they were over 20 years old. And actually, the Royal Society had been quite angry at the time of the Iraq War, um, when the Pentagon had tried to use their reports to justify sending depleted uranium or using depleted uranium in Iraq. So, you know, you'll see this tendency where certain scientific studies are pointed to, they turn out to be very out of date, all the scientists involved actually don't think that their work supports the claim that it's safe to use uh, depleted uranium. And an expert that I've spoken to here in, in the UK, um, Doug Weir from the Conflict and Environment Observatory, he's told me that there's a growing body of scientific evidence that highlighted uncertainty and recommended precaution. So that seems to be where the scientific debate is at now. And even more interestingly is if you look at um, court cases. So here in the UK, we've had at least two judgments where soldiers who served in Iraq and were involved in removing tanks that had been hit by depleted uranium from the battlefield um, have, one, uh, have been found to, in one case, a soldier called Kenny Duncan. Uh, three of his children were born with deformities after his service in Iraq, and he was awarded a, a war pension. He won a war pension appeal on the basis of that. So there's a court judgment in his favour stating depleted uranium poisoning. And in another tragic case, a man called Stuart Dyson, who served as a corporal in Iraq, he died from cancer at the age of 39, uh, the young age there. And uh, the inquest jury in his case found that it was, it was probably depleted uranium that led to his cancer. So that's just in the UK. If we look at Italy, there are over 300 cases where the Italian courts have awarded compensation to uh, veterans or their bereaved families for cancers that they've contracted that have been linked back to exposure to depleted uranium. In the case of these Italian soldiers, they were actually um, carabinieri, uh, peacekeepers, who were sent to Kosovo when NATO had fired large quantities of depleted uranium in 1999. And um, like your colleague was just saying there, these were um, peacekeepers who were sent into areas after combat, after the firing had taken place, they were bivouacked in these, in these places, often unaware that depleted uranium had been fired there. Um, and then they came back to Italy with all these cancers. There's said to be 8,000 of these veterans in Italy who are suffering from cancer linked to depleted uranium. So, you know, as well as looking at the scientific evidence, we also need to look at the court judgments and how, how judges have been looking at this. And it, it, it really is quite, quite alarming to now think that this is going to be used or is being used in Ukraine um, in areas where, you know, we want Ukrainian civilians to be able to live after the conflict. Uh, on top of dealing with unexploded cluster munitions, they're also going to have this huge hazard of depleted uranium to contend with as well. Bill Miller, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Chief reporter for Declassified UK will link to your piece, Contamination Fears After Ukraine Loses British Tank. Next up, the first Africa Climate Summit in Nairobi. We'll speak with a Kenyan activist there. Back in 30 seconds. Naquela roça grande tem café maduro, 
E aquele vermelho cereja São gotas do meu sangue Feitas seiva O café Vai ser tu rato Pisato Torturato Vai ficar negro Negro da cor do contratado Monangambe, Rui Mingas, here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We end today's show in Nairobi, Kenya, where the first Africa Climate Summit opened Monday. U.S. climate envoy John Kerry pushed for the establishment of a carbon market, but many African climate justice activists pushed back against the idea. Ahead of the summit, Oxfam slammed wealthy nations for delivering a pittance, they said, to help East Africa confront the climate crisis. According to Oxfam, over 31 million people are currently facing acute hunger across Ethiopia, Kenya, Somalia and South Sudan due in part to the climate crisis, which has disproportionately impacted the region. For more, we're joined by Eric Njuguna, a Kenyan climate justice organizer who's at the summit and also helped organize the People's Alternative Summit, which just wrapped. Thanks so much for being with us and for going to an Internet cafe to find some good connection for us. It means so much. Eric, talk about the significance of the summit and the alternative summit that you helped organize. So this is the first time there is an African climate summit, which is being held here in Nairobi. But there isn't, there has been a huge push by, um, Western governments and Western consultancy firms like McKinsey and company who have been pushing for carbon markets. And this doesn't represent Africans, Africa's interests because carbon markets is basically, um, giving corporates and global North countries a ticket to pollute while it's they're offsetting, uh, emissions in lands owned by local communities and indigenous communities who are being kicked out of their lands in the name of carbon markets. And that is why after we realized this, uh, we organized an African People's Alternative Summit, which is running parallel um, to the Nairobi Summit, the African Climate Summit, uh, to center, to really give an opportunity and a platform for African people to share um, their own demands and, uh, uh, and their own interests uh, in, the, in, in the Alternative Summit. And Eric, could you talk about this issue of uh, the carbon markets that the U.S. climate envoy John Kerry was pushing, that many corporations, multinational corporations around the world are trying to focus on in Africa and the uh, some people have called it the wolf in sheep's clothing? Yes, there has been a report by Power Shift Africa, which gives uh, exposes the reality of carbon markets um, on the African continent. Um, People are being kicked out of their lands in their own, in their own carbon market. In their people are being kicked out of their own lands in the name of carbon markets. Yet John Kerry is here in in uh, in Nairobi for the African Climate Summit, pushing for um, pushing for this very carbon markets and no commitments from the U.S. to actually cut down on emissions. And that this just shows a conflict of interest because on one hand he's pushing for carbon markets and when he's asked about finance for loss and damage, he says. No, 
um, the U.S. cannot pay. Yet Africa is bearing the brunt of the climate crisis uh, and people are dying. People are losing their own livelihoods as a result of the climate crisis. And people uh, desperately need this finance um, for loss and damage, but also um, for adaptation and mitigation. And uh, the, the commitments have not yet been made. So John Kerry, while he's just here, um, is not, does not have Africans, Africa's interests at heart. So this is what part of what the U.S. climate envoy, John Kerry, said in his speech at the African Climate Summit yesterday. President Biden has now launched a program called PREPARE, the president's emergency program for adaptation. And he has committed that we are going to help at least a half a billion people in developing countries, especially in Africa, to be able to adapt to the worst impacts of this crisis. He has committed the United States to work alongside African nations to lead the way in adapting to and managing the impacts of the climate crisis. And as part of PREPARE, he is providing or will fight with the Congress and guarantee that we will provide $3 billion annually for adaptation for the $12 billion program that he believes is essential in order to be able to do our part to adapt to this challenge. That's the U.S. Special Climate Envoy, John Kerry, addressing the climate summit in Kenya. Eric Njuguna is with us at a uh, internet cafe in uh, Nairobi right now, a Kenyan climate justice organizer. Can you respond to what he has just promised, Eric? And also talk about how multinationals have benefited from mining across the African continent, particularly the cobalt mining, most notoriously in Congo, and what you are calling for. Okay. So the first thing is that um, John Kerry has promised uh, uh, finance for adaptation and mitigation. But the reality of all climate finance that has been given, it has been in debt-creating forms meaning that global South countries, including African countries, have to pay back to global South, global North countries for a crisis they had the least role in causing. And that is why um, here at the African Climate Summit, climate justice organizers are calling for non-debt-creating finance um, because climate justice is, uh, is uh, it, it, climate, climate finance is uh, reparations for the most affected um, people who are the least role in causing. And Eric, could you talk about how you you got involved in the uh, in the, the climate movement uh, in your youth uh, after a severe drought in uh, in Kenya? Yes. So I became a climate justice organizer not because I wanted to, um, but because I don't have any other choice but to be a climate justice organizer. Um, Kenya is bearing the brunt of the climate crisis, and back then when I became a climate justice organizer. Um, Nairobi was facing lots of water shortages as a result of uh, low water levels in the Dakaine Dam, which is uh, the largest source of water for Nairobi residents. And as a, as a result of that, having seen the impacts of uh, lack of water, especially on young children, I was around 16 at the time, and having seen the impacts of lack of water on my own peers, that pushed me to take action. And that is why I became a climate justice organizer. And can you respond to your own president, to William Ruto, 
who said the African continent is losing 5 percent to 15 percent of its gross domestic product growth every year to the widespread impacts of climate change. And what you think needs to be done on the African continent by Africans, though you are not the ones who have created um, the catastrophe of the climate today. Yes, our president is right that um, African countries are bearing the brunt of the climate crisis, and that even translates to us losing a huge percent of our GDP. And um, and one thing that Africans need to focus on, and that is my message to African leaders here at the African Climate Summit, uh, is to focus on call, um, on uh, on phasing out all fossil fuels, uh, as well as massively investing in renewable in publicly led renewable energy, so that energy is offered to um, to Africans as a common good and not a commodity. Um, through the just energy transition programs that have been signed uh, between global North countries and South Africa, Senegal, Indonesia, they have been pushing for a lot of privatization, and African civil society have been pushing against this. Um, the second thing is calling for climate finance. We need non-debt-creating climate finance to support global South countries in adaptation and mitigation, but also a separate loss and damage uh, finance facility uh, to support those who have lost their own lives and livelihoods as a result of um, the, the climate crisis. And then the second thing, the third thing, is that Africa has huge access to minerals that um, that are necessary to power uh, the just transition to, to a renewable energy future. Yet we don't want to follow the same pattern where multinationals and global North countries have been benefiting from, from, from our own minerals. And that is why we need to stand strong and develop frameworks that um, can, um, can provide, can make sure that countries that like the DRC, where cobalt is being mined, are benefiting from, uh, from these resources, but also stopping child labor in the supply chain of uh, these minerals. UNICEF estimates that around 40,000 children are, are involved in the mining of, uh, of cobalt in the DRC, and we need to put an end to this. And Eric, can you talk as well, not just about the role of the uh, Western multinationals and the United States, but also of China, the world's largest trading partner, also the current largest emitter of heat-trapping gases, though historically not uh, China's role, especially on the African continent? Yes. Um, there multiple global North uh, countries, especially multiple global North countries uh, um, and multinationals here at the African Climate Summit. Wait, sorry, could you repeat that question? The role of China in Africa when it comes to the climate crisis. Yes. So um, China is one of the largest emitters, but they have also um, been investing in renewable energy um, in, their con in, in, the, in the continent, uh, in the continent, but also in China, um, which is uh, one of the leaders in developing solar panels and also technology to power um, renewable energy. But what we want as, uh, as, uh, as African countries is also um, technology transfer. And uh, that is something that Africa, uh, China has been working in collaboration with African countries to ensure that there is technology transfer. And uh, this, these technologies are not only being developed, uh, and uh, they maintain uh, the patents and uh, the patents and uh, the rights to the use of this uh, of the, of these technologies.
Well, Eric and Juguna, we want to thank you so much for being with us and even being able to hear us in the Internet Cafe you're in, in Nairobi, Kenya. Uh, Eric Njuguna is a Kenyan climate justice organizer and campaigner. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.